All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, and let me, uh, let me start this. Before we get into it, I want to address something. Um, last week, uh, Gabe uh, let you all know that I misspelled a word on a slide and blamed it on my homeschoolingness, um, which, whatever, I think it was just my typing. But I want to make sure this doesn't happen again. So um, I have a, a, a favor. If you guys could help me do some proofreading on this next slide and see if there's any like grammar or spelling mistakes, um, that would be great. So pay close attention. Did I do okay? All right, just wanted to let you guys know, share that with you all. We're very excited to have a sibling for, for Amos. So now let's really get into it. Let's get into Romans chapter 4, justification by faith. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. Romans chapter 4 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. But what, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Well, Father, we thank you uh, for this truth, Lord, of, that you have justified us, Lord, and it's by faith and it's not by our, our works or our own strength, Lord. We thank you that you have um, taken our sin upon you and you've given us your righteousness so we can stand before you and, and be in your presence, Lord. Pray that you'd open our hearts uh, to hear your word this morning. Speak to us and teach us, Lord. Um, give us ears to hear and, and hearts to understand um, what you have to say to us, Lord. And I ask you, Lord, for your grace to uh, speak your truth uh, with clarity. Let it be all of you and none of me. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and be seated. So we're in the book of Romans. It's a big book. And I want you to have a, a good grasp on uh, where we're at, what we're talking about, because Romans covers a lot. So before we dive into actually chapter four, I want to give you the outline of Romans, but I'm only going to use big words, at least nine syllable words or bigger, okay? Now, there's a reason, but I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I'll explain the big words too, but I'm just going to hit you with, with all the big words, okay? So we begin with the introduction, that's not a trick word, that's just the word. Uh, it's the introduction. Paul says hello and gives his purpose in writing this book, uh, which he says the purpose is to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. Now, when you think of the gospel, right, we, we typically think of the, the summary, right, the, the thing you need to communicate to an unbeliever, that we are sinners, that Christ died to pay for our sin and rose again, he conquered death. If we turn from our sin and trust in him, he will forgive us and give us everlasting life. That is the gospel, that is good news. But as you notice, the book of Romans is slightly longer than that. 
And Paul had more that he wanted to communicate when he said the gospel. Uh, he had much more in mind. So he, he covers the whole story, everything from our sinful state of being separated from God to the mechanics of salvation, how we're saved, what that looks like, all the way down to the practical of how we should live in our day-to-day life. It's the whole story because the gospel does change not just after we die, but it changes our life now. So he begins explaining the gospel with condemnation, which goes from the middle of chapter one to uh, most of the way through chapter three. The condemnation, we are condemned. It's the bad news that we are all guilty before God because we have sinned, right? And, and he talks about how everyone is guilty from the, the immoral sinner who loves their sin and is just pursuing every lust of the flesh to the person who's maybe is gonna judge that person and be like, oh, they're, they're pretty bad sinners, but they themselves are, are sinners. And he includes the Jews who have the law of God just because they, they know what is right. That doesn't mean that they're not sinners. They also are sinners. And so everyone is guilty. That is the bad news. That is the baseline. He moves from there to justification, which is what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, from, from here all the way till chapter, the end of chapter five, where the sinner is declared righteous. And that happens through redemption, which is uh, the purchase of Jesus, Jesus purchasing us with his blood. And then he talks about imputation. I know you guys use that often in your day-to-day life, um, which is our sin being credited to Jesus and his righteousness to us. We're gonna look more at that later. He moves from there to sanctification in chapters six to eight, where Paul talks about the effects of being justified, which is sanctification, how we are being made holy, made more like Jesus. We learn to live differently as servants of God instead of serving sin. Now, a couple bonuses, he throws in predestination and glorification in there since we need some more big words, right? The predestination, basically that God knows everything and glorification that when we see God face to face, we'll be in his glory, we'll be glorified, okay? And then from there, he takes kind of a side trail in chapters nine through 11 and talks about election. Wait, what is God doing with Israel now that Gentiles are being saved? And then chapters 12 through 16 is the application, which you guys all know that word. It's the truth put into your life. So he uses a lot of these big words, but why? Why is Paul using these words? Why do, in Christianity, do we use these big words, these kind of specialized words? Why do us as pastors use these big words? Well, there's a few reasons. The first one is to sound smart. Just kidding, that's not the reason. The real first reason is for efficiency in communication, right? So instead of explaining everything that a teaching means or, or a, a particular topic in, in our faith, we give these topics or these ideas names. And this is something very normal that we do in many aspects of life. You don't talk to somebody who works on cars and say, oh, you're a, a car fixer and truck fixer and maintainer, and you just say, he's a mechanic. You sum it up. Um, maybe some of you do that, but you can say mechanic, just so you know. Um, many of these theological terms, right, or, or these doctrines, which just means teachings, they're just a succinct way to refer to a whole subject matter. Another reason why we use big words is because the impact of the gospel is profound, right? God's word 
it tells us a lot about who he is, which remember, he's an infinite being, right? And what he has done for us, how the God of the universe has stepped into our hopeless, sinful state, died in our place, forgave our sin, and changed our lives for all eternity. We should expect an infinite God and this incredible gift of salvation. It should take some words to explain, and it should take a lot to understand. Not that it's difficult to understand, but it is so broad and so deep that Yeah, it should take us a few words to fully capture what God has done for us. Now, the the final reason that I'll give is we use these big words for clarity because while there is a lot to what God has done for us, it's important that we understand the difference between the various aspects of our salvation so we can live our lives according to truth because right teaching, right believing is the foundation for right living. Let me give you an example Let me just show you just really quickly the difference between justification and sanctification. So justification, where God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous, it comes through faith. It's a part of salvation or the moment when you put your faith in Christ. It's instantaneous, it's a one-time event, and it's permanent. God declares you just and it's done. Now, sanctification, on the other hand, or where God makes believers holy or set apart, it's this God's work in us, and it actually happens in, there's three different phases where scripture uses the term sanctification, but there's three distinct parts to it. The first part of sanctification, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Sanctification begins the moment you put your faith in Christ because it's being made holy. So Christ takes you out of the world. He takes you out of the the mire of your sin and he sets you apart. That is the beginning. He says, you are mine. But now the place where we are right, where we live right now is this gradual, continual process whereby God is making you more like Jesus. He has various means by which he does this which is he transforms us through his word, he purifies us with trials, and he allows other people as iron sharpening iron to come around us to help make us more like Jesus. So you, this is the phase that we are all in. And finally, when we see him, we will be like him. The process, the transformation will be complete. We will have no more sin to be purged the moment we see Jesus. It will all be done with. So you can see that these two things, though they're both part of being a Christian, they're not the same. They're not the same thing. Now, why is it important that we understand? What happens if we confuse just these two ideas, not to mention all the other ones? So let's, let's look at it. If you think that justification is gradual, how would you live? You would try to work for it. You would try to, to nail it down and get there you would work really hard because you want to seal the deal and know that you are right before God, not just that you're like on your way. But if you think that sanctification is instant, that it all happens the moment that you put your faith in Christ, that the moment that you believe all your sinful desires, all your fleshly tendencies, it's just poof, it's gone, and you don't wrestle with sin anymore. If you think that, then every time that you do sin, you're gonna feel condemned and discouraged and defeated over and over and over again. I know some of us have been there, right? You've been in that place where like, why am I still sinning? I shouldn't be here. Maybe because you don't understand correctly 
that sanctification is a process and the Lord is gonna bring more and more things out of you. He brings them to the surface and then we repent and he purges them away. So justification is not gradual, it is instant. But sanctification, it begins at salvation, but it is a process that we are still in. We don't wanna get those two things confused. So we use big words and we, we, are, we clarify what we mean by something so we can correctly understand and correctly live our life. So today we're talking about justification. Let's, let's get into it. So what is justification, right? It comes, it's the, the same word to justify, which the, the verb of that is dikaiuo uh, in the Greek, which comes from dikaios, which is the, the adjective form, which means righteous. So it's the verb form of the term righteous. It's a forensic term, right? You have two options when you leave the courtroom of God being tried for your sin. You will either remain condemned or you will be justified. You will be declared right with God. Now, two of the main ways that it's used in scripture are these. It's either to show to be righteous or to declare or pronounce one to be righteous. Now, these are similar, but they're, they're different. But context helps us know which sense is being used. So understanding that this word justify is used in different senses in scripture. It's actually very helpful to me um, because some of you guys maybe have come across the verse in James 2 where it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? But then we have like the passage we have here or in Romans 3.28 where it says, a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. There are many people who have come to these two verses and said, it's a contradiction. It says you're justified by works. This one says you're justified by faith. What do you do with that? Now, there's a handful of ways that there, there is to understand how those two things work together. It's not actually a contradiction, just on the surface it is. But understanding, for my brain, understanding that justify can mean to show that you are righteous or it can mean to declare to be righteous, the, the apparent contradiction is just vanished into thin air. Because in James, Abraham was justified or shown to be righteous by his works, by his obedience to God. His actions showed his faith in God. But here in Romans, it's talking about how Abraham's faith is the means by which God declared Abraham to be justified. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So there's not actually a discrepancy. You just need a little context and that understanding that scripture uses the same word in two different ways is very helpful. So this is the definition that we have here in Romans 3 and 4. It's what the context defines for us. It's the being de declaring or pronouncing one to be righteous. And this is something that God does. So as Paul introduced justification, just a few verses earlier in Romans 3, just a quick recap because he's, he's making an argument. Romans is very logical. It's very systematic and laid out as a, a well-thought-out argument. So verse 19, Paul had concluded uh, this section on condemnation, saying that the law makes everyone guilty before God. Verse 20, he says that no one can be justified by keeping the law. Verse 21, that God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law 
through faith to all and on all. His righteousness is on all who believe and there's no difference for Jews and Greeks for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which we often stop there. Verse 24 says, and are justified freely by grace through the redemption or purchase made by Jesus. So Paul has made a pretty bold statement to a Jewish audience that you cannot be justified by the law. You cannot be declared righteous by keeping the law. The purpose of the law was to show you that you need Jesus, that you are a lawbreaker, not to make someone just. So this is what he has laid out. And as he moves into to chapter four, he's going to further his argument. He's gonna bring some evidence. So four pieces of evidence. He's gonna have Abraham as exhibit A, Exhibit B is the one who works. Exhibit C is the one who does not work but believes. And exhibit D is David. So he brings up Abraham and David. What other names could you drop to a Jewish audience to say, well, these guys, look what they said, right? Why? Because Abraham was the father of their, their faith. He was their forefather. He was the very beginning of that people group. And David, he was the, the great king of Israel. He was the man after God's own heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. So if there are two names that would carry weight to them, it would be David and Abraham. Now, the one who works and the one who believes is a, is a those two points are, are a contrast with each other. Now, I'll just be honest, they could have been one point, but making them two points means that we can have exhibit A for Abraham and exhibit D for David. So is it cheesy? Yeah, but now you'll remember it better, okay? So exhibit A, Abraham. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? So why does Paul use Abraham as an example? It's because Abraham, he was the beginning of the Jewish people. God had come to Abraham. He had called him out of his homeland, away from his family who worshiped false gods. And he said, go to a land that I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna make you a great nation. Abraham did that from him, came Abraham. Isaac, and then Jacob, and then from Jacob came his 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so he was their, their the, the ultimate father in a sense. And what has he found, right? Abraham's, because Abraham's the man it all started with, Paul is saying, let's go back to the beginning. Let's see how Abraham was justified. Now, it says, hey, what has he found according to the flesh? Now, some of you guys might have... Uh, a Bible translation that does not have the word James in it. And yours might say something like, what is Abraham found? Our father according to the flesh. So when you translate it like that, it kind of suggests that Abraham was referring to Abraham being their physical ancestor when it says according to the flesh. Now, what we have here in the New King James is what is Abraham found according to the flesh? That kind of gives you the idea that, uh, that talking about the flesh and like a spiritual sense of like, what did Abraham find when he was trying to please God in his flesh? Which one's correct? Obviously, scholars are split. Um, but I, I think the good news is that either way, you, you end up with the same conclusion, asking what was Abraham's experience with justification? I kind of lean towards just the simple, literal meaning of Abraham being their physical ancestor, because he was. Um, and then it goes on to talk about Abraham's faith, not his, not his failures, how he struggled to the flesh. So just because we can spiritualize 
something in scripture doesn't necessarily mean that we have to or that we should. Okay, so either way, what has Abraham found? That's the main point. Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about. So remember, the backdrop of this statement is that we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul, a good uh, arguer, if that's a, not the right word, but whatever, he creates a hypothetical scenario. It's like, okay, so if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If he was, that would indeed be impressive. Now, I don't know exactly how the Jews thought about Abraham. Was he venerated as a saint? Was he thought to be, you know, perfect? I don't know for sure. But I do know two things, is that as humans, our tendency is to exalt heroes or people that we look up to and we think of them as better than they are, which is why when you meet somebody who's famous, you get all nervous because you think that they're some other kind of person than you are, and turns out they're not. They're just normal people. But we do that, right? So it's possible that the Jews did that as well. We also see this warning that John the Baptist gave uh, in Matthew 3 when he's talking to the Pharisees because they're claiming Abraham as their father, and he's like, that means absolutely nothing, right? So sounds like they were kind of name-dropping Abraham. They're like, well, we're, we're kids of Abraham, so we kind of get to, to go along with, with his, his righteousness, his goodness. So, so I think Paul, in creating this hypothetical scenario of Abraham being justified by works, I think he's also kind of deflating some people's misunderstanding of who Abraham was as a man. So if Abraham was declared to be right before God by his good deeds, yeah, he has something to boast about. And so would you, if your good deeds had earned you salvation. And it would give Abraham great bragging rights. But you know what else it would do? It would make us say, okay, he's the example we need to follow. We need to do the same things that he did so that way we can get the same thing that he got. It's very similar to the the concept of coming in and just acting Christian and just doing the things that you see other Christians doing because if you do the same things, then God will accept you because clearly other people know him. But that's not how it works. It's not just do the right things. It's come to faith in Christ and he will change you and then cause you to do those things. It's interesting here that Paul connects working with boasting. If Abraham was going to, if he was going to work, he'd have something to boast about. He does this a couple other places. Uh, in just the previous chapter in Romans 3, he says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So the reality that it is not our own good works that earn salvation, it makes us so we have nothing to boast about. We didn't earn our salvation, so we can't take credit for it because faith excludes boasting. It says this also in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Works would make us boast, but salvation is a gift that we must receive by faith. Now, God knows our sin nature, he knows our pride and our insecurity, and he knows that if we could take any credit for our salvation, we would. How do I know? Because we kind of already do, right? We, we look at other people, we compare ourselves to other people or how we think other people are, and we're like, well, we're better than them. It's very easy to conclude as believers, like, you know, God must have saved me because I'm actually pretty all right. We do that. We brag, we compare, we brag about silly stuff like, clothes and cars and houses, and especially us guys, 
we'll brag about the silliest things just to one-up each other, right? Our income or our truck or our deadlift or our push-ups or pull-ups or our fish or our deer or how many horns our deer had, don't shoot me, ways we almost died. We'll brag about all that kind of stuff. Now, let me tell you a story to illustrate this. And as I was studying for this, I said, I need a good story of somebody doing something to one-up a buddy. And I thought, you know, Peter Irwin always has a good story. So if you know, don't know Peter Irwin, he's Pastor Isaac's brother-in-law, and the man has some good stories. And I said, don't disappoint me. And he did not disappoint, because not only did he give me a good story, he gave me a good story that involves Pastor Ben. <laughs> so here's the story as far as I know it. So the Irwins and the Park and some other families, they're camping, they're on their way back. Pastor Ben says, hey, let's pull over. I want to show you guys a hiking trail that goes down to, yes, this very uh, pool of water, a deep spot in the river. It's much deeper than it looks in this picture. But Pastor Ben walked out, um, very red from being sunburned, as you can see, out onto the log, over the water, and so everyone else says what all of us would say, jump, 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 jump. And Pastor Ben said no. So Peter, I, I will do it. And so he goes out, and he jumps. And the way he told the story, the look on Pastor Ben's face once Peter jumped was, I have to do it too. <laughs> so you know what Pastor Ben did? He jumped into the cold water. Now the whole point of that is that if we're going to boast and try to one-up each other on such insignificant things, like jumping into cold water just because somebody else did, if we were responsible to earn our salvation, we would boast. We'd compare ourselves to others. We would be like, well, I'm more saved than you. It'd be a mess. God knew that, so he says, it's not by works. You don't get to boast. This is something that I did for you. So it says that yeah, if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. Paul takes the air out of the, the, air out of the balloon on Abraham, right? He says, yeah, Abraham, even if he was such a great guy that God said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna justify him because of how good he is, before God, he wouldn't have stood because he was a sinner. He would still fall short of God's glory because like it says in James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Abraham was a sinner by nature. We have a record of his sin in scripture. So even if he won first place in the best humans ever contest, his sin would still leave him condemned. And just like Abraham, the best boast that we could make about ourselves is going to fall flat and pathetic before God's holy perfection. So it's not, not before God would our boast stand up. So what does the scripture say? So we go from this hypothetical scenario that kind of exalts Abraham and Paul contrasts it with scripture. Rather than relying on folklore about Abraham, he takes it back to the authority of scripture, which is a good reminder that rather than leaning on our subjective opinions or creative conjecture, we have to submit every thought, every idea and say, what does the scripture actually say? So what does it say about Abraham? It says that Abraham believed God and it, his faith, was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed what God had told him and God declared him to be righteous. That is how he was justified because he believed God. Now, you notice this is a quote. This is a quote from Genesis 15. Now, there's two questions we should 
answer from the story of Abraham, right? Let's look at what, what had Abraham even done up till that point? Did he even have anything where he would, you'd be like, man, that guy, he deserves salvation because of what he did. And the second thing is we want to look at what did Abraham believe when it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So I won't make you turn there. I'll just recap briefly. But Genesis 15 is actually pretty early on in the story of Abraham. We met Abraham in Genesis 12. God told him, leave your father's house and your home country. Go to the place I'm going to show you. He also told him he's going to make him a great nation. So Abraham went, okay? It's pretty good. From there, Abraham traveled around, eventually ended up in Egypt, and he told his wife to lie and say that you're my sister, so that way they don't kill me. Not such a good look. Um, We read how Abraham and his nephew Lot ended up with tons of possessions, so they parted ways so that all the animals could have something to eat. Lot gets attacked and captured by a group of kings, and then Abraham rounds up the boys and goes and defeats the kings and rescues Lot. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, then Abraham meets Melchizedek, blesses him, gave him a tithe. That's pretty good. And then we're at chapter 15. We don't have a lot of Abraham's life. It's a mixed bag. It's not, it's not all gold stars for Abraham. It's a mixed bag, just like all of us. But here in chapter 15, God shows up to Abraham and he tells him, you're gonna have, you're gonna have a son from your own body and that your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. That's what he told him. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So at that point, bear in mind, Abraham's probably a good 80. Sarah's at least 70. Right? So it was pretty, they had been unable to have children, so their chances were pretty slim at this point. So Abraham didn't do anything crazy. He didn't have an impeccable life. But what God promised him He took him at his word. He believed God. He believed him that he would have a multitude of descendants, even though he didn't see a way, even though it was pretty much impossible as as far as physically, but Abraham believed. He just took God at his word. Notice the simplicity of that statement, that Abraham believed God. Yeah, what God had promised Abraham, it has profound implications as it played out, but Abraham's faith was incredibly simple. He just took God at his word. He believed that what God said is true, even if he didn't understand it. The same is true for us. The gospel is incredibly profound. It impacts everything in our life. There's so much to understand about who Jesus is, but at its core, receiving the gospel is to believe God. Believe what he says about you and what he did, right? That we are guilty sinners. Believe that, that we're hopeless on our own, but that God sent Jesus to give his life as payment for our sin, that Jesus rose again and offers eternal life. And if we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we'll be forgiven and give a new life. You believe that. You receive it. It's simple. Now, it says that it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we understand that it was by faith that Abraham was justified or declared right before God. But what does this word accounted mean? Because it's actually used quite a bit in these eight verses. So understand the, the uh, accounted word. We need to back up a little bit. So we are, we're, we've covered condemnation, right? That's what was shown in the first three chapters of Romans, that every person is guilty of sin. You're in the courtroom. All the evidence has been put out, and you are guilty. And the verdict is death. You are condemned to death. That's where Paul has brought all of us. But what we're currently co- uh, discussing is the contrast to condemnation, which is justification, 
Now notice that Paul is not saying that faith in Christ makes us innocent of sin because to, to call us innocent would be to imply that we don't have sin. Instead, the word says that we are justified. We are declared legally to be righteous or in right standing before God. Notice that sin is not ignored, but sin is dealt with. So this is the other verdict that we can leave the courtroom with. Rather than condemned, we are justified. We are declared right. Now, how does that happen? That happens because of this accounted word. It it actually describes the process by which a just God can declare the guilty sinner to be righteous. In Greek, it's the word logizomai, which shockingly is an accounting term. It means to take an inventory, to count over, to calculate, to make an account of, to number among or reckon with, to credit, to suppose, or to think. A.T. Robertson, a, a, a Greek scholar, says it's the old and common verb to set down accounts, literally or metaphorically. It was set down on the credit side of the ledger for righteousness. So it kind of gives the idea of something like a bank account balance. Now it's important we understand this idea of being accounted or credited or imputed because this is how justification is able to happen. This word is gonna be used five more times in the next six verses. Like I just said, it's either accounted, counted, or imputed. They're all this same word. So let me give you a visual. I I stole this concept from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. But first, there's a verse that describes the accounting or the imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, that's God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange taking place. Our sin is being put on Christ, and his righteousness is being placed on us. Let's see it visually. So we have Jesus, right? And here's all of his righteousness as positive signs, as plus signs, okay? And here's us, And here's all of our sin as negative. We are guilty and Christ is righteous. But then Jesus goes to the cross and pays for our sin. And what happened is that God looked at Jesus with your sin on him. Your sin was accounted. It was moved over into Jesus' account. It was pinned on Jesus and he punished him for it. That's what God did for us. And what we have, if we stop right here, this is forgiveness. Our sin has been washed away. But notice, and that would be a gracious gift, just that, start from scratch. But right now we're at zero. There's nothing. We don't have any righteousness. So God did something even more. So Jesus defeats your sin, casts it as far as the east is from the west, and then the righteousness of Christ is placed on your account. God imputes or views Christ's righteousness on you, on your account. Now notice, it's not your righteousness, but it's, in theological terms, it's a foreign righteousness. That is, it's a righteousness from somewhere else. Christ has placed his righteousness on you. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. So now, Take this picture and you're back in the courtroom, but your crime has been paid for. God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. You have been righted. 
you have been declared just. So if you take something and you make it simpler, you have simplified it. If you take something and you make it more beautiful, you have beautified it. If you take something and you make it false, you have falsified it. What God did here is he took something unjust and he made it just. He justified you. He declared you to be right. So justification is the verdict resulting from your sin being imputed to Christ and his righteousness being imputed to you as a glorious, glorious thing. Now, exhibit B, the one who works. So Paul is continuing the argument. He's shown what Abraham experienced, but now he's gonna move on to his next one, which is an illustration from normal life. He's not, when he says to him who works and then to him who does not work, he's not giving two options to receive salvation, working and not working. But Paul is drawing a contrast between working for something and receiving something as a gift. As it says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt or something owed. Let me illustrate this for you because you all understand the difference between a gift and a paycheck or something that you were owed pretty well. So it's Christmas week. You show up to work. Your boss hands you a box wrapped with a bow. You're excited. You start to open the box, excited for what's inside. And inside the box, you find an envelope. And you know what's in the envelope? It's your paycheck. How do you feel? Like that. Why? Because you know that your paycheck is not a gift. It's not something extra. It's not something given freely. It's something that you are owed. A paycheck and a gift are not the same thing. So if you work for something, then you're owed a paycheck. You're not owed a gift. But Ephesians 2, 8 says that salvation is a gift. Therefore, we cannot work from it. Because you know what we get, reality, what we get from working, the wages we earn is death. The wages of our sin is death. We've sinned, we've earned death. And this whole idea of, man, we just need to balance out our bad works with good works and to tip the scale, balance it out, it's totally impossible. There's no scale to tip. We can't dig our way out, right? We, we break one law, we're guilty of breaking all of them. There's no cleaning yourself up for God so he will accept you. If you're, if you're here, I'm glad you're here. But if you're here and you're like, I'm, I'm gonna come to God, but I just need to get rid of some things first. I need to fix up some things. I need to stop doing some things before God will forgive me. Stop. That is not true. You can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up. The cleaning, that's his job. You just come to him. So this is what makes justification so incredible, that God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous through faith and not by works. Exhibit C, the one who does not work, but believes. This is the contrast. The one who works and the one who does not work. Paul's clearly showing you cannot work for that which is a gift. And so he tells us how we can be justified. How are we justified? He says, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. It's not by working, but by believing in Jesus. Faith in Christ, that is the means by which the sinner receives forgiveness and salvation. Now, who does God justify? He says, God justifies the ungodly. And you know why? Because that's the only kind of people he has to work with, is ungodly. That's, that is who we are. Now, that's God's account of us. We need to join him 
in believing that, right? In order to receive forgiveness, we need to believe God's assessment of us outside of him, which is that we are ungodly, that is against God or not like God. Because notice it doesn't say he justifies the churchgoer, he justifies the moral person, he justifies the generous person or the kind person. No, he justifies the ungodly. Because if you were a good person, you'd have no need for justification if you were perfect. But none of us are in that camp. We are all in the camp of the ungodly. Like it says in Romans 5, well, we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through Christ. And that's good news that God justifies the ungodly because if you will admit that you're ungodly, that you're a sinner and you come to God by faith, God will justify you. He will count your sins to Jesus and, his, and Jesus' righteousness to you. He will cleanse you and forgive you. He will slam the gavel down in the courtroom and declare as the God of the universe that you are righteous. He will put a new heart in you, one that's alive to him. He will place his spirit in you and give you a new nature, one that desires to honor him. In other words, your faith will be accounted as righteousness. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful blessing to know that all of our sin will not be held against us, but can be washed away, which is exactly why Paul brings up David in Exhibit D. So not only did Abraham experience imputed righteousness, but David did as well. David is describing that blessedness, the happiness, the joy that there is when God does not count your sin against you. And he says, this blessedness comes apart from works. It comes through faith. It's not, it's not by works. So he says in verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or oh, how happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. It's the same word, right? As in Matthew five, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, all those things. It's that word blessed, happy, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, two separate words for, essentially for sin. Is there really a difference? Not really. One is defined as breaking God's law. The other one is defined as missing the mark or falling short. Remember, this is a quote from the Psalms. So I think David is using variety. So he's not always just saying sin, 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 sin. There's iniquity, there's lawless deeds, there's transgression. They're all a little different, but basically the same. It's all sin. But whatever name you give it, David says that our lawless deeds, our sin is forgiven. This word forgiven means literally to send away, right? So picture that in your mind. Your sin is before God. When he forgives you, he sends it away. Like it says in Psalm 103, he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west, because you can go north and eventually you're going south, but you can go east and never start going west. East and west will never meet. So he has cast our sins that far from us. Is it not a blessing to know that God has sent your sin away? And it says our sins are covered or covered over. It's not seen any longer because Christ has covered it with his blood. Now, this, these two verses, this quotation is from Psalm 32. And... Uh, it's a psalm of David, and the structure of the psalm is such that David begins with these two verses, the blessing of forgiveness, but then he, he backs up and he shares where he was at before he received forgiveness. Listen to Psalm 32. 
He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is what happened before. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's likely this is a psalm like Psalm 51 that was written after David's sin with Bathsheba, where he committed adultery, where he killed her husband to try to cover it up. They lost the baby. That was the result of that adultery. And it sounds like it could have been close to a year before David actually repented. He was sitting on sin that long. The Lord had his hand on him for that long. And if you've ever been in a place where you were wrestling with the Lord and he's like, this thing needs to go, and you're like, no. You're not happy. You're not joyful. You don't feel good. Because God in his mercy, he's not gonna let you be comfortable with sin. And so in light of that, maybe you remember one of those times when David confessed his sin to the Lord, just like 1 John 1 says, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then David said, man, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin because David was that man. He was speaking from his experience. It is a joy, it is a relief, it is a blessing to turn from our sin and receive forgiveness from the Lord. In our last verse, David says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now we've talked about what it means to impute sin, for that sin to still be on the right side of the screen where it's still on our account. But it said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That word shall not in the Greek, it's a double negative. It's two negative words which don't cancel each other out. They make it stronger. So you could literally say, blessed is the man to who the Lord shall never, ever impute sin. This is the hope that we have, that we come to God by faith. He forgives our sin. He will cast it away and never, ever bring it back up. Now, we do that to each other, and it's very easy to believe that God's going to do the same that he's gonna hang your, your, your past and your old sin back over you and be like, I can't believe you did that over and over again. But he says he will never, ever do that. I know sometimes you can have that experience where just in your mind, in your heart, you just feel so much shame for things you've done in your past and you've repented, you've confessed that you've given it to the Lord and just over and over you feel that. Let me tell you, that's not God. You don't need to repent for the, for the same sin and ask for forgiveness a hundred times. He forgives you, and he's not gonna bring it back up again. So if you're feeling that, just know that is not the Lord. He doesn't throw our failures back in our face, hang them over our heads, because he has declared us to be just once and for all. And that verdict is final, and it will not change. And you know why you can't lose justification? You can't lose the status of being declared righteous because it's not your righteousness. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. It's Christ's righteousness being put onto your account. So if you're gonna think anything otherwise, you're gonna have to argue with what God says, that he has declared you to be righteous. The hammers hit the table and he says, you are justified. 
So next week, Pastor Isaac is gonna be teaching on Romans 5, which begins having been justified, talking about justification as a past completed event and all the blessings that we have. So that's justification, right? Remember that God, God is still in the process of sanctifying you. He's still transforming you into the image of his son. That work is ongoing. But if you've placed your faith in Christ, the work of justification is complete and it's finished. But if you've never repented of your sin and turned to Christ, I urge you to do that today because he is ready to forgive you and bring you into his family and all of your sin, the ones in public, the ones in secret, whatever they are, they will be forgiven and God will never, ever account them to you again. Let's pray.